<clears throat> if Lin-Manuel Miranda were here, he'd probably say, Quasimodo under furlough with his statues quasi-solo, Esmeralda Salafella, Notre Dame, that's Gypsy Stella. We're talking the Hunchback of Notre Dame on today's... We're not affiliated with Netflix. That is so good. Welcome to KidFlix, the podcast where adults try to definitively rank every kid's movie ever made. I'm your host, Ross Wiseman, and this podcast is not for kids, so turn this off and have your mom cut your hot dog into bite-sized pieces. And I already want to apologize up front because I've record- I recorded that intro twice and I mispronounced Notre Dame. Dame. Notre Dame. <laughs> twice so oops on my part um i just want to say notre dame and i know that's not what this is about um yeah so let's let's get to the guest i don't know why i always like to try to ramble up front uh she is a comedian uh a writer uh you know her maybe from uh the youtube series that she helps work on as well as if you're in the philadelphia area the incredibly funny uh thank you place is the improvised musical angelina mian mian dim <laughs> this is not going to be um, a pronunciation podcast. Just, just, just disappointment after disappointment. No, I'm kidding. Uh, me and, but hi. Hi, how I'm are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm good. I, I don't think we've really had a conversation in like a year and a half. No, you're going to get an earful today. Like. Perfect. Wait, real quick. Can you move the mic just a little bit closer? Sure. Yourself? Yeah. Yeah. So like you can put it like literally right up to your mouth, kind of like cool. this. Yeah, don't you feel cool? It's like NPR, except I, we're in uh, just a yeah. college study room. Or old time radio. Oh, people are falling from the sky. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. But um, t- I know you have a lot. You post on Facebook a lot about the Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> yeah. Boom. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so tell me a little bit about kind of what connects you to this movie. Um, so that's a long question. I have a really long history with the source material itself. Um, but when you approached me to do this, uh, so I, I work for, um, a YouTube, uh, personality by the name of Lindsay Ellis, and we just talked about The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, and, and kind of, oh gosh, this is already getting tangenty, but like, uh, it's place in, 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 um, I guess the Disney time frame and how... It has changed over the last uh, 170 years since the book was written and the messaging that people pull from it. And, you know, a lot of people criticize the Disney movie for uh, making it a lot lighter than the book. But in the history of this book being adapted for mass media, like, that's always been the case, even mm-hmm. with Victor Hugo. Like, he did it himself for an opera version of it. Um, but uh, prior to that... Uh, I, I was an art history major in college and specifically was really into architectural history and city planning. And one of the things that kind of got me into that originally was um, the book, which is not about any of the drama that gets put into movies. I mean, that's there, but it was Victor Hugo just writing the screed about how um, architecture was the original language before books were widely available to people. And architecture informed how your life was run, what you knew of the world, what you knew of your place in society. And then so the printing press killed that. That's what the book is about. And that was the book that got me so interested into art history. But I had read it when I was 15. And before that, all I knew about it was the Disney movie, which I, as a kid, hated. <laughs> like, it, 
it deeply terrified me as a kid. Um, I remember it came out when I was eight, the summer after third grade. When I was born. <laughs> yeah, that's what to say. <laughs> Oops. I'm an old. Um, but it came, it came out when I was eight. I remember seeing the previews for it and immediately being like, I do not want this in my life at all. This is terrifying. And um, I remember my next door neighbor had seen it before me and I was playing in her front yard and she was like, yeah, this movie's really scary. <laughs> There's like a guy and he's a misformed or misshapen baby and he wants to throw it down a well. And I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to see this. <laughs> I don't. And then my mom uh, had to like, the first time ever my mom had to drag me to see a Disney movie. Like I was just like, I don't. I don't want to see she this. She was really insistent on she seeing was it. She like, we go to see every single Disney movie. We're going to the theaters. And I just was like, no. And I just sat in my chair in the audience, just like with my hands crossed over my face. Oh, just no. like, ah! So I, I really didn't. I saw that movie once in theaters and then didn't see it again until I was a teenager. And it actually like made me feel some conflicted feelings. Wait, I'm confused. So I didn't read the Victor Hugo book. Yeah. Where does the hunchback come in? Um, so, I mean, like, that that drama is there, Esmeralda, Frollo, mm-hmm. Quasimodo, but they're all kind of, like, I think, oh, gosh, tangential stuff, but um, a lot of what people take away from the Disney movie and, and adaptions before that is that it's a story about social justice and uh, misfits getting their place in society, which is good, and I, I don't think that's a bad thing. But in the book, this all happens. Everyone dies, though, in the book. Like, everyone oh. dies. <laughs> so I mean, spoiler alert. That does make sense. Like, yeah. in the movie, I wrote, when I, I was watching it last night, and just all of these weird do sex machinas at the end, like, yeah. uh, Trollo falls to his death because the the stone comes alive. Yeah. And just, like, this crazy falling, and then yeah. Phoebus catches him. Yeah. No, in the book, Quasimodo throws Frollo off in Notre Dame. Like, Damn straight. Picks him up and throws him off. And it happens after he watches Esmeralda die. Because Esmeralda is... Sorry, this is, like, just a brief synopsis of the book. Esmeralda uh, is hung. She's ultimately hung, and Frollo starts laughing, and Quasimodo just, like, picks him up and throws him off. And... Victor Hugo goes in this very long tangent about Frollo's death. It is, the book is, a, it's a dark book. How anyone saw this and was like, you know what, this would be, which this video essay that I worked on is why this happened and how this change in the story came to be. But then anyone could see this and go like, oh yeah, kids movie is still, it's kind of bewildering, but I, in a lot of ways, applaud Disney for like wanting to do something like that. Um, yeah, I'm trying to spare you a 50,000 like word essay at the front of yeah this. I mean, well you wrote uh, like a 20 something minute video about yeah. it so it makes sense that you have all those feelings oozing out and we still had to cut so much stuff from it just for time alone yeah <laughs> but yeah well like with this podcast i've been watching all these movies that i had known about but i hadn't seen and hunchback of notre dame once you said it oh. i was like oh yeah that's that's one that i know exists and yeah. i know the name quasimodo and that's about it watching it i I was very much thrown off with how stark, starkly different it felt from any other movie. And I think I say that a lot on the podcast. I'm like, this is so different than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. But I mean, um, I, was, I was in an elevator with some people and I was going uh, up to my room to watch it last night. And I was like, is it a good movie? And people are like, it's so great. I'm like, are the songs good? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> Well, so, like, uh, my, my ultimate feelings about the movie is that I, while I personally love it, it is a totally screwed up movie, uh, like, to its default. Like, I think 
there's so much of that movie where they the writers clearly want to lean into the stuff that's emotionally weighty and interesting but uh if you know anything about disney animation particularly in like the 80s and 90s is that michael eisner was the head of ceo of the walt disney company and jeffrey katzenberg oh my god i'm my boss is gonna yell at me i'm forgetting his title already (laughs) but like they with the success of beauty and the beast which got nominated for an oscar was the first animated movie to be nominated for best picture but it lost like that was kind of like the the bone like we have to we have to kind of dig more into these like real more gritty realistic ones like pocahontas was made specifically to get an oscar and then that backfired tremendously on them but um so like when that when you look at hunchback you can kind of see that like they even had the it was directed by don han or produced by don han and kirk wise and gary trousdale directed it and they were the creative team behind beauty and the beast yeah and you can just see that line of thinking um, because how this movie got made was uh, the head of creative affairs had um, this classic illustrated comic book from the 40s. I have a copy of it. And it's very much based on the 1939 movie. He had read it as a kid. And he remembered it being like a really cool, like action-driven, affecting story. And he had pitched it for Disney to adapt. And like they were like, sure, this sounds great. It was 1993. Beauty and the Beast was a success. Aladdin was doing really well. Lion King hadn't come out yet, but like... They were, they were on the right track. They were on the right track, exactly. And... A hunchback to me feels like the epitome of like Disney doing everything they can that worked for them in the past and trying to shove it all into one movie. And sometimes it works really well, like leaning into the really heavy stuff, the darker stuff. And sometimes it's really bad. Like this was the first movie that went to production after Aladdin was successful. And you look at the genie and you look at the the fucking gargoyles, man. And you're just like... They're, they're oh. front and center on the cover. And I was like, I mean, they're going to be a huge part in this. Jason Alexander voices one of the gargoyles. Yeah, exactly. And he's barely, they're barely in it. And I'm just like, but this is just sad. Yeah. It's so sad because you're like, oh, he's just, he's hallucinating yeah. the whole time. Well, that's what it's implied in the books. But like, if you watch the movie, like the goat, like Jason Alexander's flirting with the goat and it's implied like they're real. I'm not even going to get into the animated sequel that Disney made for this where it confirms that they are alive creatures. No way. Yeah. Oh. Okay. I was going to talk about that later. It was like, we need to talk about this sequel because I, I had it pulled up on my phone and I couldn't bring myself to read it because I, I just it, saw like... Doesn't Esmeralda and Quasimodo have a baby? No, 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 no. She and, like, Esmeralda and Phoebus, like, have a kid that's played by Haley Joel Osment. And it's, like, set, like, seven years after the original. And, like, it's basically, like, how Quasimodo got his groove back. Like, they're trying to hook him up. And he hooks up with Jennifer Love Hewitt. Wow. Good for him. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Which, it it is soul-crushingly bad in the way that pretty much every Disney sequel is soul-crushingly bad. But there's something... Specifically about Hunchback and Notre Dame 2, when you say it out loud, it just feels like... You know which one I don't think is that bad? Which one? Um, Lion King 1 and a half. I've never seen that one. It's really weird. I saw it one time on Disney Channel when I was like seven, so I don't yeah. know how well I remember it. But it's just like... I don't know how to describe it, but it's just like you see Lion King kind of in the distance, then Timon and Pumbaa just dicking around. Yeah, I've heard it's supposed to be like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is... Kind of. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's like the if, if Hamlet or Lion King is Hamlet, then, then Lion King one and a half is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which it's makes me want to see it really badly. I don't know if you would like it. I just rem- I don't remember any conflict. I think it's just a hyena might come around at sure. some point. And they're just like, th- I'm just going off of what I know about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, having seen the movie a few times, but it's like they're just throwing a ball around and like talking about stuff. And meanwhile, Almost. all this big drama's going on. Have you seen the trailer? For Lion King One and a Half? Yes. 
No, I can't say that. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> but the trailer, they do the, they show, um, you know, the scene at the beginning during mm. the Circle of Life when all the animals bow. And Wait, I think one I... and a half reveals that it's because Pumbaa, Pumbaa farted. farted. I have seen this. I think I buried it somewhere in the back of my head. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That like, it's probably fine. It's probably like a very just nothing movie. Yeah. But I mean, that's okay. Those 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 have their place. But Hunchback of Notre Dame two has no reason to ever exist. You telling me it's not completely faithful to the source material and characters? <laughs> like. Oh my god, the big the big plot point of that is that like Quasimodo has a bell that's covered in jewels on the inside and it's beautiful on the inside, but Ugh. it can't ring. How can a how can a bell covered in stuff ring? I just the physics, man. I oh. But anyway, uh um Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Hunchback is very much like a reaction to kind of everything that had worked for Disney really well. And then like this is like kind of the first case in them like well, Pocahontas didn't also got a lot of mixed reaction and then Hunchback. But people still is... think about Pocahontas. I think Hunchback people, it's mainly, yeah. it's a lot of an oh yeah movie. Yeah. yeah. Like Disney kind of buried it. Like is it, it, it didn't, it made, it's, it made a lot of money and it wasn't like a complete like critical stinker, but it got a lot of like feedback and I think they, it's a hard movie to merchandise to begin with. Although if you watch commercials for toys from this movie, it, it's it's a mind fuck. I like, really hope that Quasimodo was in a Happy Meal at some he, point. Just well, like, hey! I, I just, you know what? I'm going to send you a link to a, a Burger King commercial uh, from uh, 1996. Uh, they had puppets that were the toys and like, it's the most surreal commercial in the world. Somebody had to write it, and it's like this cute little girl is like, Mom and Dad took me to Burger King, and Quasimodo was there. And it's just like, and then, like, she's like, and it was great. And then the crowd lifted me up, just like Quasimodo. And you're like, yeah, but then they threw tomatoes. Oh, my God. <laughs> when that scene happened, he, they hog tie him and throw tomatoes. Yeah. I was just like, who? Actually, wait, this brings up a question. Like, because the the... The jester at the beginning when he's singing the song of Notre Dame, yeah, which yeah. first of all, great song. I, it's my favorite score from any Disney movie, like for sure. For I think so. Movies. It's it's really good. I need to listen to it some more, but I'm I was hooked the first time. But the way that he was singing, he was like, "Who's in that tower? Who's ringing the bells?" And then by the time Quasimodo gets down to go to the Festival of Fools, mm-hmm. everybody's like, "Hey, it's Quasimodo." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's like, and there's there's some weird mixed messaging on that. Like, in it's, I th- I think dramatically like they're like who is this guy blah 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 because it's just a good lead in a movie and it's a good way to introduce a character that um isn't cute for lack of a better word you know or mm-hmm. i think the, the the design for quasimodo is about ador- as adorable as you can make <laughs> him like he's, 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 he's like so adorable um but uh just a kind of easier way into the, having that kind of a character as a lead you know you, you just you do want to kind of shroud in mystery i get that from a narrative point of view in the book it's just like everyone knows who quasimodo is they all hate him because they know he's like frollo's lap dog and stuff like that so like the town just hates him he's not like a mystery or anything yeah. it's 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 just really sad <laughs> also, but yeah frollo is a crazy villain frollo's like one of my favorite disney villains he's great because yeah. i for a while i was like oh hades is a really good villain because he's like he's fun but he also has some real evil behind him but yeah. holy shit yeah. frollo the first three minutes, he he kills a gypsy mom and yeah. nearly drowns the baby. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like his whole thing is like I think the thing that sticks out to me about Frollo is um, most Disney villains really like if when they have their big song, it's about how awesome it is to be evil. Like, and they love being evil. But his whole song Hellfire is just like him tormented by like the horrible things inside of him and him trying to justify these evil 
racist thoughts that he has. Yeah. Didn't um, he? It when he was singing it, it made it seem like he had a crush on Esmeralda. Oh, totally. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I couldn't quite tell. Yeah, but no, I, that's the thing that I think also I think rubbed parents really wrong. Like the villain was so overtly like sexual. Like he's so like, and he's in the book too. Like, well, he said he. I uh, I didn't write it down, but he he says some really weird, creepy shit towards yeah. the end. Yeah. Yeah, no, like, the it's, the whole crooks for him is, like, he's, like, this weird racist fear-mongering city official, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a judge in this. In the book, he's a priest. Um, Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, in the book, he's he's, uh, Archdeacon of Notre Dame. Uh, You can see why Disney changed that. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of adaptations, or adaptations changed that, but... um, uh, yeah, like, his whole thing is just, like, he lusts for something that he demonizes really hard, and it's just, like, that's, what a weird thing for a children's movie. Like, you listen to him talk about the way he talks about, like, Romani people in this movie, and it sounds, I don't want to be, like, topical, but very topical. No, it did. It did. Yeah. It was, like, the same when I watched um, Zootopia. Yeah. And I was very surprised yeah. by that. But, yeah, it's, it's also, it's weird because... Romani people, just how you hear about them, at least when I was a kid, mm. just like the idea of gypsies, like the movie semi addresses it. That it's just yeah. kind of like, oh, they're just like this idea of yeah. just kind of like people that read palms. Yeah. But. Yeah. There's, there's this, as much as I appreciate what Disney's trying to do, I think they also kind of get hoisted by their own petard and kind of cater to some of those stereotypes mm-hmm. a lot. And it's just kind of like the, and I want to make, lay no bare bones about this. If you ever read the book, it is deeply racist. Like it is, um, uh, not good. Okay. <laughs> and uh, a, lot, a lot of the movies have struggled with, I think, this aspect of it. Because I, I think it's... Uh, I'm trying to keep this like a light conversation. Yeah. But like, almost every adaptation of uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame that I've ever seen still falls to this. Like, in the book, Esmeralda is not even really wrong. Like, Rama, Romani. And I apologize if it's Rama Romani. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, she's not even that. She was kidnapped by them. And is actually, like, it's oh. so awful. I just remember reading that and being like, what? This is horrifying. Um, but uh, the only version I've seen that actually um, kind of gets at the heart of something that's actually moving and relevant is the 1939 version where... Um, like, that's not that that whole subplot is left out, thank God. But also, like, um, there's a deep backstory to that movie that I'm... This could, I could do a whole other episode on the 1939 yeah. movie. But it was made by um, this German director who had left uh, uh, Germany in the 1930s because of the Nazis. And the Romani in this movie are put as, like, people who are actually kicked out of places. Um, they're not allowed into Paris for no reason. And Esmeralda is there to sneak in and, like, plead on behalf of them. And they're not demonized in any way. It's just, like... Whoa, for holy. refugees. Yeah, like, exactly. That is exactly it. And, like, some of the dialogue in this movie that was written in 1939, you hear it, and it's, like, haunting. <laughs> like, genuinely, yeah. sincerely haunting. And I guess, like, if you... This video that I had to work for basically is that the Disney movie is not a remake of the book, thank God. It is a remake of the 1939 movie. And I feel like it just came out at a time where it didn't seem really relevant. <laughs> the mid-90s are just kind of like... Yeah, everybody was just like, OJ. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, whereas, like, now, with this movie, it is kind of like a, oh, an oh, yeah, movie. And most the people I know who love it it's just been like something that they like loved and never really had anyone to talk about it with and I think with just the way society is now like um when you watch it now it feels actually really topical <laughs> Um, yeah. Yeah. And like it's definitely different just because I mean like I've never been discriminated against because of my my race, but mm-hmm. I mean as as a gay man, mm-hmm. as a Jewish mm-hmm. person like I de- it, it definitely struck more and I uh, 
are you aren't you excited for the day when we can all just go back to just like goofing around on Facebook about nothing? I know. Oh my goodness! Like yeah. today, I I I like my head started hurting so much at work uh, today. Um, so we're, we're recording this uh, Thursday, uh, and all the stuff about Louis C.K. just mm-hmm. broke, mm-hmm. and I'm like angry and frustrated, and it's just so much is just piling on, and yeah. I'm just like. Like Tuesday was such a great day. All the election yeah. stuff was so fun, and then yeah. we're just kind of back uh, down in it. But I think I think what's what strikes a chord about this movie is with this kind of situation that we're in, where everything just feels so weighty and heavy. Um, that the Disney version does, and to some extent, other versions is that there's hope that fighting the fight's good, and that there's hope for something. Yeah, Phoebus's uh, kind of little speech at the end yeah. when he's like, Frollo yeah. has been doing this in the tower. Yeah, exactly. You're just like, yeah. And Esmeralda's like, you mistreat people and I want justice for people. And, and she, she like, spits on Tro- Frollo's... I keep wanting to call him Trollo. Yeah, like the Trollo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I keep... He, just Esmeralda's last moment, she just spits on Frollo. So good. I remember the one thing that I did like about that movie when I saw it as a kid was I loved Esmeralda. I was like, dude, she's cool. Like, I just want to be her, having adventures and like fighting a sword and spitting mm-hmm. in bad people's faces. Like, love it. Like, she's awesome. And like, this is one of the only times that I've watched a movie and when the main character like clearly has feelings and they're not reciprocated. Mm-hmm. It was like one of the only times that I felt actually terrible because it's like, he's she's like the first person that's ever been <laughs> nice to him. Quasi like, no. cannot get a break. But this is, this said uh the, the what i also like about the disney movie that no other versions do is like his relationship with frollo is weird and like no no other version really addresses that like, like, like a, he calls him master even though it's clearly like a father he's yeah, a father to him like it's an abusive parent relationship and like the, this is the only version that i can really think of that actually kind of digs into that um and i i like that like that it kind of goes there and he has that moment in the end where he's just like you've told me that the world is a cruel and awful place and i just realized that it's, it's cruel and you. awful people like you and you're just like damn like sanctuary but, but but with that is the dynamic that frollo feels entitled to a woman and quasimodo you know learns that, that that's not like it's a very powerful thing to teach you know that you're not no one you're not entitled to anyone's romantic interest, oh yeah you know and like you can be friends with somebody and and he, he learns that when yeah. when when it's so cute when phoebus and uh esmeralda hold hands and then uh quasi just puts his hand on just like look i'm here for both of you yeah, and you're like oh this little happy fam like yeah <laughs> and they all die and phoebus is a monster in the book <laughs> Like, he, yeah. is he not as redeeming as he is in the he movie? He's a complete monster in the book. Like, he's not a good person in any way, shape, or form. That's a damn it's shame. It's so, like, whoa. There's, like, again, he doesn't have that change of heart. He never has that change of heart where it's like, I was in war, and now I'm here? No. no. In the book, he's like, he, so he saves Esmeralda. It's a long story. Like, Frollo has Quasimodo try to kidnap Esmeralda for him. Backfires. Quasimodo gets arrested by Phoebus. Esmeralda immediately falls in love with Phoebus. Like is like, oh, he's so great. And Phoebus is just like engaged to a really rich, rich woman. He's just like, I just want to fuck her. Like literally, that's all he does. And like they are about to bone, and then like Frollo stabs Phoebus, and then Esmeralda gets pinned with it. Like, and that's Whoa. so the fir- she she gets tried for a hanging twice in the book, and the first one is she's being tried for a hanging or 
stabbing Phoebus, who survives, but, like, knows it wasn't her and says nothing because he doesn't want to ruin his engagement to this rich woman. Mm -hmm. So, like, the first time she's about to get hung, Quasimodo saves her, and that's when the big sanctuary thing happens. And the second time happens at the end of the book, and Phoebus just stands there watching her on the gallows as she gets hung. And, like, he could, you know, potentially save her life, and then he just kind of lets her hang. (laughs) And I was about to say, like, that's super dark, but then I remembered Victor Hugo wrote Les Mis. Yeah, exactly. So that's not surprised by that at all. It's the same way in that it's, like, it's a, a book of a cast of hundreds of characters, and, like, everything is bad. Although, um... Victor Hugo wrote Hunchback of Notre Dame when he was 30, uh, or like roughly in his early 30s, and it was his first like big novel that he had written. He had been a successful playwright and poet, but like uh, he had written, he wanted to write about Notre Dame because it was in complete disrepair in the 1830s after you know various revolutions and also just being like an old building that yeah. was finished in the 1300s, and we didn't really have this concept of historic preservation at the time. And, like, so he wrote this book, but he went to this publisher and was already successful as a playwright, and they were like, yeah, we'll do whatever you want. Here's a huge advance. It was, like, 4,000 francs or something like that, which is a lot of money. And uh, he didn't write any of it and was just, like, fucking around writing plays and, like, trying to sell the stage rights to other publishers at the same time before he had even written this book. And, like, his pub- the publisher that had actually given him the advance was, like, super pissed, and he had to get, like, a posse of his friends to convince this publisher, like, not to sue him to death. Um, and he wrote, like... Notre Dame de Paris in like maybe three months and it's a very cynical sad book so like when you asked me earlier like where all of this drama with Quasimodo and Frollo Esmeralda fits in is that it's there but like the point is is that like these dramas all happened it's the book set in 1492 and the book was written in 1830 so the building is like 400 years old almost mm-hmm. at that point he's like these dramas happen but that's not what matters what matters are things like Notre Dame itself live on and that's everything else is kind of minuscule and humanity's dark and sad and cruel and that's why things like Notre Dame are important because they live on and survive these cruelties of it's kind of like the 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 walls have eyes and stuff like that yeah it's a lot like that and like that's why these buildings are important they survive uh humans cruelty it's a very cynical look at humanity whereas he wrote Les Mis in the 1860s and you know 30 years of experience at this point and there is like a very much more as a sad and tragic and tormented in the same way that Notre Dame is uh Les Mis has like a much more like redemptive look at humanity so like like Mm because it's like you know everyone dies and sure but But everybody has motivations and you understand like even um Javert like he's a dastardly person but you're just like I mean he yeah. He's doing what he's tasked to do. Yeah. If Notre Dame de Paris, which is the original title, was like about people suck, but like t- things will survive it, uh, Les Mis is like circumstances in the world suck, but the individual choices that you make as a person can affect other people. Like the bishop forgiving Jean Valjean, Jean Valjean forgiving Javert. Like those have, they're two, like they're both very dark, long books, but they have very different approaches to humanity. And I don't know if it's, I, I have to assume part of it's because of the success of like Ms. the musical, but a lot of people take that distillation of this idea of social justice and humans being good and I think have retroactively fitted that on Notre Dame which it's not that's not the book at all but the movie versions definitely lean into that mm-hmm. um, because it's it's a really depressing book and it's just like <laughs> I don't know like how do you mitigate that there are some really interesting points to be made in, in this melodrama between Quasimodo and Frollo and Esmeralda without like you know completely just turning off your audiences although it was an immense success as soon as he published his book like it made money yeah. people are like yeah yeah, we do so. Yeah, exactly. It's so weird. So yeah, like when you see something like the original book, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and you see the Disney movie, and sure, it changes it, but I think 
that's fine. I, I, I'm never one of those people that gets mad when, like, I see an adaptation of, like, a book that I like, and it's not, like accurate to the story because they're two different mediums yeah like that like you can't go in, into a character's mind in the yeah. same way that a book yeah exactly like they're two different mediums i don't have I, what matters to me is if it's just entertaining and good and well written and thought out like mm-hmm. so um that's kind of what i look for in movie adaptations versus like well it wasn't close to the book so i don't get angry about that sort of thing like when people are like oh like the fourth harry potter <laughs> movie they completely left out all the thing with the the um the uh, like dwarf revolution or oh oh yeah the, the house elf of revolution yeah the house elves yeah, spew, yeah. It's like, how would you fit that into that already two hour movie yeah like just and like you look at the first two Harry Potter movies and they're like they they try so hard to be super close to the source material and honestly they're the most boring ones and yeah. it's just like the third one's my favorite because it's just it's so good. <laughs> and like, also it's I think it's one of the more fun looks at time travel yeah. and just kind of you see them. It's basically like Lion King one and a half. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. It's everything is Lion King one and a half at the end of yeah. the day. This is the uh. movie that changed everything. <laughs> but yeah, like the the ability to kind of find what's moving in a narrative and um, spin it in a new way, as long as it is a, like emotionally um, consistent, I'm like down for that. So I'm not mm-hmm. mad that they change anything in Hunchback of Notre Dame. What I am mad about are those fucking gargoyles because they show up like photobombing toddlers. Every time there's like a good emotional moment, Jason Alexander dives right in and he's like, Hello! Hey, I was into a bird, you know? I'm going like, to sing a song. You're like, no! Oh, that's the only song. <laughs> like, ugh. It's just, um, and, and a lot of that is Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner just being like, we can't trust kids to like kind of sit through yeah. a dark story. We gotta throw well, something in there. When you saw this in theaters as a kid, did you like the like gargoyles <laughs> I hated it all. You're like, why is she yelling at all those birds? Yeah, like, what's what, why? I just remember being, yeah, like, I don't know, like, so turned off by them and then, like, seeing this again and every time I've had to watch this movie or watch it because I like this movie, um, I, I just still go, why? Like, for the love of God. Like, there's this moment where like Quasimodo has like this little song and it's like really sweet and sad and it's about how he's never known what like oh. love is and equates it with like heaven and like oh my gosh the first time I feel like I might know what it's like to feel heaven's light and you're like this is beautiful but the whole time it's just like the gargoyles are like drawing like dumb yeah, shit yeah that was weird it's and like, like Jason Alexander isn't a good drawer no yeah and he's drawing like the goat because he wants to like bang the goat which is yeah. really- Weird. I also wrote down, I do think it's cool that the goat has a little earring. Yeah, yeah. I was and like, that's cool goat. The goat is not an invention of Disney. The goat is in the book. Like, oh, Yeah, yeah. Well, that perfect. Is, that is an animal sidekick that existed <laughs> before the uh, Disney adaptation. So, yeah, it's it's her little goat sidekick. Amazing. Um, jolly. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Hunchback of Notre Dame. Boom, I nailed it. Yeah, got it. <laughs> Boom, be right back. And we're back. We're talking Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, I'm going to be excited every (laughs) single time I say it with uh, Angelina Mian. Yeah, we were talking over the break just about just books in general. And just it's so hard to keep up with them. It it really is. Those those dang books. Like, reading used to be an easy thing for me. And now it's just like, Like, I got a Nintendo Switch, too, also, which which is complicated matters. And I'm like, well, I could... I was telling uh, you over the break that I'm reading War and Peace, like slowly um, Mm -hmm. doing a reread of it. And, you know, you're like, oh, the great Russian masterpiece of the 19th century. But Stardew Valley, I could go, which is a farming game. Don't. Okay. Yeah. I don't have a switch. I just downloaded Super Mario Run. So that's my (laughs) that's my thing right now. Yeah. But uh, 
Oh my goodness, I was about to do a really smooth segue, but I forgot it. So let's just go back to Hunchback yeah, sure. and Notre Dame. Um, yeah, I, do, okay, here's something weird that I was thinking of watching this. Mm. It doesn't really feel like a Disney movie. To me, this feels more like that really brief moment where DreamWorks Animation was putting out great movies. Like, this feels like on the same wavelength as The Prince of Egypt. Sure. So that actually, um, the funny thing about that was The Prince of Egypt was made as Jeffrey Katzenberg's big fuck you to the Walt Disney Company. Really? Because mm-hmm. he, he left in 1994 uh, for a lot of reasons that are very complicated, mostly ousted, but like uh, left and formed DreamWorks as a fuck you to Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, and The Prince of Egypt was their first movie and like they, they like leaned into that shit hard. You know, like they're doing something that Disney never dared to do, which is tell a biblical story and get like the most star-studded cast they could find uh like that that was jeffrey katzenberg's big fuck you okay yeah Yeah, because like and that and shrek like where his big like eat shit and die kind of message to disney you know what fuck shrek shrek is bad it's it's not good it's cynical i i i was in um la a couple months ago and we went to uh universal and the shrek 4d ride oh my god it's abysmal (laughs) you like, the, first of all, the waiting area, once you're inside, you just see... Do you get, like, farted on the whole time? I, like, that's what honestly, I Honestly, I wish. <laughs> like, that would at least be something. But it's like, you wait in this waiting area for, like, 20 minutes, and mm-hmm. you just see the three little pigs are in a cage, Pinocchio's in a cage. Hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you walk in, and it's you just watch a 10-minute short film. Like, this was too bad to even be, like, on the DVD extras. Oh it's God. Lord Farquaad's ghost comes to haunt Shrek and Fiona as they're trying to go on their honeymoon. What? Oh, my and, God. And by 40, it's like, you know, you have the glasses and the seats supposedly move, but, like, nothing happened. Do you get do you get farted or belched on at all or, like, earwax or anything like I that? I don't remember. That's what I the, just assume. The one scary part, legit, like, part that made me jump is there There are spiders at one point on the screen. Okay. And so they do, they, like, sweep string or something under your feet so yeah. it feels like a web. Yeah. And that that was the only part that was spooky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you've been you've been to Disney more, much more times than I. Do yeah. they have any Hunchback of Notre Dame stuff? Like, z- z- like they occasionally have Frollo and like Disney villain stuff. Like, yeah. very rarely. But like, although I will say they just premiered a new fireworks show, um, and I like lost my mind because like Disney just does not want to admit that this movie exists. Like, but like at the fireworks show, they had that song out there in it, and I was like, what the. Disney, like, what? Oh, my gosh. Like, a whole minute of mm-hmm. their fireworks show devoted to Hunchback and Notre Dame, which is so weird. But they haven't merchandised it at all, which is the weirder part. Because Disney Real, There money. weren't, like, plush dolls or anything, mm-hmm. even. Nothing. You you maybe can find a pin of, like, Frollo on something. But otherwise, that's it. Although, I went to Disneyland Paris, which is uh, maybe about three or four Whoa. years ago. It's, it's like, I bet they're all about Hunchback. Because they're like, that's us. It's, like, well, I will say, like, that was the only place up until that point that I had seen any mention of Hunchback of Notre Dame. And a lot of people have, like, this weird thing that they thought France hated it, but they didn't. Like, I think it was just, I don't know. I don't know where that assumption came from. But, well, I think um, it's always, like, because Disney does so many of these movies where it's, like, trying to not appropriate the culture, but just, like, try to generalize it, like, yeah. in a palatable way. Yeah. And, like, I know we were just talking a little while ago with Pocahontas. Like, that definitely rubbed a lot of Native American tribes the wrong way. Because yeah. it's like, what do you think we are? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Pocahontas, and Pocahontas was literally, like, they wanted to make Romeo and Juliet, and then, like, again, searching for that Disney Oscar, uh, they were like, well, what if we did, like, a real historical event, and they'd thrown around Pocahontas, and originally when Pocahontas was in development, it was 
kind of a little bit more in line with the historical truth. Still Disney-fied, where it wasn't like mm-hmm. all the actual really horrible shit. Yeah, no small. But like, it wasn't like, like a love story. And then they aged Pocahontas up and turned it into Romeo and Juliet, and like that was, yeah. Yeah, yeah Romeo and Juliet have been tossed around, and Pocahontas had also been tossed around. And so they're like, let's combine the two, and we'll get an Oscar. Perfect. And, and then uh, they did. They didn't. <laughs> oh, they didn't. That movie has not aged well. I all. I don't think I've seen it since I was a kid. I mean, I semi remember the words to Colors of the Wind, but that's yeah. about it. Yeah, and the music's like uh, music is Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz for that, who were also the people that did Hunchback of Notre Dame. And Stephen Schwartz wrote the music and the lyrics for Prince of Egypt, just so. You're like a Disney encyclopedia. This I... is unreal. Like, Chris, uh, Angelina has zero notes in front of her. Like, this is mind-boggling. Like, I have, a, like, this long list. I'm just, like, I'm trying to remember plot points. And you're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, funny thing, you should mention that. I, I should preface this. I'm not just some weirdo. I was just a weirdo who really wanted to be an animator when I was in high school. So, like, I, like, live for this. And I also just live for human drama and... Nobody knows drama like Disney, like personal inside business drama. Yeah, so you were also mentioning um, that there was just a lot of Disney drama in the 90s. Was I'm assuming a lot of it was fueled by this just desire, like, we are going to win that Oscar. Yeah. I think uh, the thing to know about the Disney company in general is that money-making with through its movies was never something that they were really good at. Uh, Snow White was, like, an immense success, but, like, it cost them most of their money that they had made through, like, their short cartoons at that point. And then the next couple movies they made, like Pinocchio and Fantasia, nearly killed the Disney company. They made no money. And it was only when uh, they started leaning into merchandising and with the advent of television where Disney began making its money and then Disneyland opened and... It's all... Yeah. And so, like, a lot of people look at movies like Bambi and Pinocchio and think, like, oh, man, remember the golden age where everyone wanted to go see animated movies made by Disney? And that wasn't the case. Like, they're important now because of reruns, of re-releases. Disney's really got really good at the that. The vault. Yeah. Re-releasing them not only from the vault, but in the 50s and 60s to the next generation of kids in movie theaters and then with the advent of the television and the Disney Channel, like, seeing these movies again. Um, there for kids born in, like, my generation and then with VHS releasing them too. Like, they've gotten really good at building this narrative that these are important cultural touchstones to have. And, uh, like, which, which is fascinating to me. Um, but they weren't making money. And there was a brief period in the 50s where, yes, they were making money again with, like, Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty. Sure. But, like, the 70s and 80s, and this is the very big important thing to know about uh, this compared to the Disney Renaissance, were just... The 70s and 80s, like, they almost shut down the animation department entirely. And Roy, I, I can't even think of really any real memorable animated movie because Sleeping Beauty was... That was the 50s. That was the 50s. Yeah. I've also never seen that. It's, um, it's, I mean, the story is very simple, but the animation is beautiful. Like, hmm. it is gorgeous. It's a gorgeous movie. It's one of my favorite Disney movies. But it's it a very simple story, but uh, very pretty. Um, but the Disney company was in such dire straits with money. Um, so much had been funded into going to building Disney World. They weren't making any money from the animation studio. So many people, a lot of the original animators had died or left. And um, Roy E. Disney, who was Walt Disney's nephew, and mm-hmm. Roy O. Disney's son, was like the only person advocating for the animation department, and everyone had wanted to cut it. They bring in Michael Eisner in the 80s, and he was a um, movie and TV executive from Paramount at the time. And Michael Eisner at the beginning was really about animation and was like that was the ethos of Disney to him so he kind of trusted Roy and the animators who had survived the 70s and 80s to uh, 
put a little bit more creative weight into that. Like, so The Little Mermaid came out, and this was like, it seems like standard now, but like they got Alan Menken and uh, Howard Ashman to do it because they were popular, young, upstart Broadway folk uh, to write the score for The Little Mermaid. Oh, and that's what they did with Robert Lopez with Frozen. Mm-hmm. Lynn Manuel Miranda. Like, they, that's what they did. Like, they, um, but like, this was like kind of the precedent for that, where they were like, okay. we want to tell, um, a book-driven musical kind of story. If you look at a lot of, even like the classic Disney movies, they're musicals, but only in like the roughest sense where like oh, yeah, the Snow, songs, Snow White is barely. Yeah, like the songs aren't there to drive the narrative. They're just kind of like, it's like a song and dance show that you go to see. Um, but Little Mermaid was kind of the first thing where they really leaned into, arguably the Great Mouse Detective before that was that. I love the Great Mouse Detective. That's another <laughs> tangent too. Um, but they made so much money off that Little Mermaid formula. And then Beauty and the Beast was like, for the first that couple exploded. years, like it just kept... It it was like they were untouchable. And then Hunchback and Pocahontas are those first two movies where it's just like, everyone's like, I don't know, I'm kind of on Disney exhaustion from this. And so people look at these two movies. Hunchback, for whatever reason, gets more of the brunt of the blame, but for not making as much money or being as critically successful, when really Disney has never really always been that. Like the, the Disney Renaissance is a very rare thing in the history of the Disney company. But it's also, it's again, they've built that up so much. Like they released those. Um, like I had a bunch of those videotapes where it had like the gold leaf on the yeah, side mm-hmm. where it was like a Disney classic or I forget how they marketed it. I think it was yeah. a Disney Masterpiece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the something Disney, like that. Disney, Walt Disney animated classic is like I believe how they brand it now and it's just like they, the, the periods where Disney has made, have made money is when like they hit that branding gold. Like they're so good at convincing you that this is an important thing and I say this as someone who likes Disney World a lot. Oh yeah. I do or Disney in general but I still have to approach it as an adult with a lot of my own personal cynicism and perspective but like even going to Disney World like there's just this big emphasis on making you believe that this is so important such a touchstone in your life and you're like yeah that's yeah I want to go meet Belle like I don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's it's that's fascinating to me and that's I think why I'm spouting all this garbage off to you like, <laughs> well, well it's like a, there's I mean any business will succeed in this but I mean Disney is obviously the master and yeah. generations of just nostalgia like yeah. it's a nostalgia machine and also like as a media creator I know their whole history with copyright and how yeah. they've really messed up copyright yeah. forever yeah. essentially yeah and especially now with like all the synergy and you know disney owning having its finger in so many things like so many things are owned by disney so as a media creator too like anytime you want to talk about disney you just have to and and still like make a living like you have to be creative about it yeah you have to say like word. look i love disney but here's like ten thousand things yeah yeah it's 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 insane. And now with, like, Disney, uh, there's, what, the talks for them to buy, like, 20th Century Fox? Yeah, I, like I didn't read yeah. into that because I was like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, but. it's just like, oh, it's a monopoly. Mm-hmm. Disney has it. Well, I mean, they already own ABC. Right, yeah. They own Marvel. They own Star Wars. Yeah. They own all these different um, internet, like, all these different... Like, Maker. Yeah, they Maker. Own, yeah, yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. They, yeah. they own so much media. It's like, it is, like, a little, like... <sighs> disturbing when you sit and think about it. Um, and also now they're starting their own streaming service yep. and take it all off Netflix. Yep. Yeah. Which is sad. Like they're I, I saw that they have Hercules on there right now. I'm like, yeah. I need to watch that Go soon. Go watch it like eight thousand times. Like that was like I I'm one of those dorks that buys everything on Blu-ray that Disney really I'm like I'm so like uh, analytical about Disney but at the same time I'm like, yeah I'll buy that. Oh, well it's like I mean like I, I study writing and stuff, but it's 
I still get emotionally caught up in everything. I forget what movie I was watching the other day, but it it was just hitting all the right points. And I was like, I know what you're trying to do, and you're doing it great. Yeah. I've I've had a lot of thoughts about this, even even with Hunchback, where it's like, I'm being emotionally manipulated. And, like, sometimes I wonder if that's just a crutch for saying, like, I don't want to feel things, you know? It's it's, it's fine. I I watched Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and was, like, crying in the theater. I was like, they're talking about dads, and they know this is the thing that's going to make me cry. How dare you? How dare they? Like, and how dare I feel things? I'm being emotionally manipulated. Manipulated, and I'm, I'm kind of over that now. Did so you think two is better than one? I liked two better than one. I think so too. Two was two was so, and I I was I was one of those rare people that saw one, and I didn't have any attachment to the property or anything, and I was just like, this is it, like it's I, fine. I had to watch it twice because the first time after like 45 minutes, right after that prison break scene, I turned it off because I was like, I don't know what's going on, yeah. what the plot is supposed to be. Because yeah. they spend too much time on getting the gang together. Yeah. And I thought that was dumb. And it was a lot of just like, look how Star, like Star-Lord's shitty, and Gamora's shitty, and Drax is shitty. Look at all these shitty people. And you're like, yeah, yeah okay. Cool. And I think the second one had like emotional consequences. Like, Gamora Yeah, it just, it just to... kind of started. Yeah, like it, it felt like, yeah, exactly. Like the, the actual movie that was one, like actually started in my head. And I was like, oh my God, I get it. Like... Mm-hmm. Huh. And also the the opening sequence with Baby Groot dancing oh to God. Mr. Blue Sky. <laughs> but I, like I saw that, I was just like, oh God, Lord save us from Baby Groot. But it still made sense because like the opening credits are used to show how everyone acts as a family and protects Groot, and like and then still Teen a Groot at the end. That was great. Cat Stevens at the end of that movie, like when they're sending off. Which uh, song? It's Peace Train, right? No, it's a uh, father and son. It goes like, oh, uh, what's it's like? Um, uh, oh my gosh. I just was listening to it, like, because I can't stop listening to the song. It ruined Cat Stevens for me forever. But it's like, you're still young. That's your fault. Mm. You're like, ah! You know what I've been listening to nonstop for the past couple days? What? Uh, the SpongeBob musical. I keep meaning to listen to it. Like, I... Uh, it's, it's like, really good. That's what everyone keeps telling me. And I'm like, no. But I'm like, but you like Hunchback, and people weren't listening to you for a really long time. So you should go, like... Yeah. And I, I saw one of my favorite musicals ever last year, just... Did not care and couldn't get tickets to Dear Evan Hansen, and then saw the Great Comet of 1812, and I was like, never discount anything you haven't seen yet. So I, I really do want to see the SpongeBob because I've, I've heard that like it's really good. Well, because the whole thing is like they have um, all they just asked a bunch of different amazing songwriters to just write a song. Right. Yeah. Like Sarah Bareilles has wrote this great song where it's just how hard it is to be a pirate. Yeah. And it's so fun. Jonathan Colton Yeah. He writes like the, like the classic just like musical opening song where it's just everything's normal. Let's I've read heard, all the characters. I've heard that one. That like, one yeah. that's the only that's the only one that's like really resonated with me the most, mm-hmm. but it's just uh it's so good. Yeah. I, I keep meaning to check it out. And yeah, I'm at the point where I'm like, don't discount something. Don't discount Disney's the hunchback of Notre Dame just because on paper it sounds like a fucking nightmare. <laughs> it did. I, I settled in last night, and I was just, I was tired, and I was just like, I'm really nervous. What this is gonna what, be? What did you think it was going to be? I, I think on one hand, I was nervous that it was just gonna be just like any other run of the mill Disney. Because I mean, I, I've watched enough these like Disney classics over the years that I kind of know the beats at this point. Sure. And I was nervous that this. Like I'm, I'm tired of watching like fine movies. Like I want to watch yeah. garbage yeah. or amazing art. And I was, I was then just taken aback at how dark and dreary it got. Yeah. And but I mean, I, I think in the end, I enjoyed this. I don't know if I'm really rushing to watch it sure. again. Oh yeah. But uh, can can I get a like a baseline here? So what's 
uh, what's your, probably your favorite Disney movie? Ooh, that's hard. Um, if we're just going off of like the classic mm. animated ones. Yeah, not like Pixar or any, even yeah. like the computer animated ones. Because I have a lot more opinions about those. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we'll talk about favorite Pixar after that because yeah. I love talking Pixar too. I, Pixar. I guess I, I guess I'll go with either Mulan or Lion King. Those are both good. Mulan, I think, um, my parents told me that was the first movie that I saw in theaters. Oh, oh my God. So, <laughs> yep. I think that was one of the last Disney movies I saw in theaters. Wow. Yeah. Uh-oh. I, I, saw, I saw that as a double feature with the Lindsay Lohan parent trap. <laughs> it was a good day at the movies. Uh, That's a really good day at the movies. It was movies. a great day at the movies. My, mom's, my mom and her friend took my sister and I to Claire's and gave us like 15 bucks and took us to see Mulan <laughs> and the parent trap. It was the best day ever. I, I dragged my parents to see Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen. Oh my gosh. I, I couldn't remember what that movie's about and I read the Wikipedia synopsis and I was like, what the fuck was this? I, I seen it i think that's the thing i'm like i think i've seen that well like the poster we all remember is the one of yeah it's uh, Lindsay lohan doing a bunch of silly faces and it's just she wants to go to new york and like act in a play okay and then she's just like a klutz yeah or something like that yeah but i think yeah i think i would go with mulan or lion king and both pretty great yeah you would you say hunchback um hunchback's a personal favorite i wouldn't say like it's my my all-time favorite is beauty and the beast for so many reasons that i'm not getting into on this podcast but, fair enough uh but beauty and the beast but hunchback is like one of those things that i love it like i love like a flawed thing like it is a very flawed movie but like the potential in it is so good i like when the story leans into the darkness i love the art direction it's fantastic mm-hmm. if you've ever been to notre dame like it is I, an emotional experience i walked experience. in front of it yeah and this was last year and i had no idea i had not seen the movie you know mm-hmm. Somebody pointed, they were like, oh, that's Notre Dame. And I was like, oh, oh okay. Huh. What's over oh. there? <laughs> if, if you do go, I've been, I've been lucky to go inside multiple times. I mean, it's just, it is an emotional experience. And I, I'm not religious, and, but it's, it still is just like this thing that has survived time. And Yeah, I mean, I've, anything of that magnitude. And you can even feel the, the kind of faith that people do put in that. Like, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm Jewish, but like even going into certain cathedrals and stuff. I, I, I went into St. Paul's in mm. London, and it's... Ooh. It's gorgeous. I, I did the whole walk up the mm. steps and looked out into the city, and it's it's beautiful. It does yeah. resonate with you. Yeah, yeah. And, like, that, I think what Disney does, even if it is ignoring kind of, like, the Victor Hugo message of architecture, is it does really embody the building with, like, that kind of specialness that it has in through the art direction. But oh, it's beautiful. And I love the score. It's my favorite. But Beauty and the Beast is probably my favorite Disney movie. My, my favorites are weird. I, I don't like The Little Mermaid. Uh, I, that's fine. Yeah, like I, it's my big controversial opinion. I'm like, the Little Mermaid's not that good. It's not that good. The songs the are fun. The music's the best part. But yeah. I mean, like Flounder, ugh. Yeah. yeah. What the fuck? And Ariel just like, what the fuck? It has Ursula, who is like, I think been a, a subconscious role model for me <laughs> my whole life. Uh, but like, I, I, I don't know. Like, I just and okay. So my other follow up to that was like, what's your um, what's a Disney movie that you think is overrated? Like that okay. people love. Hmm. Um, that's so hard. Cause I mean, I don't know. I seem to. Some days I, I get annoyed with how many, how much people love and sing. Let's get down to business. Oh, oh, make a man. Yeah, from Mulan. yeah, make a man yeah. out of you. Cause I mean, I I love Mulan, and 
and it's a great movie, but I'm just like, can we, we all know that we all know the words. Because, yeah. I mean, I went to summer camp for years, and <laughs> once a day or once a week or something, somebody would start, like, stand up on a chair after lunch or something and just start singing. Let's get down to And then everybody's like, okay, we're all doing that. And then at the in the middle, when it's like, I'm never going to catch my breath, everybody forgets that part, yeah. so ev- there's just a lot of mumbling. Yeah, you're like, I'm saying about this, and you parts I thought. I didn't forget that part. Well, okay. You should go to camp. <laughs> I'll go to camp. <laughs> Okay, yeah. what about what about Pixar? What's your favorite Pixar movie? Um, I really, really, really love Wally. I, I really I should preface saying I really love the first thirty minutes of Wally and then like the rest of it is good, but like that the first thirty minutes of that. Well are, it's like, there's so much to restrain, just, there's no dialogue, it's so yeah, slow and that yeah. just becomes just, just a mad dash. Yeah, yeah, then it just becomes like insanity. But those first thirty minutes are kind of what any good animation does, because that's just building a reality out of nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. There's nothing tangible in animation. You know, this is like you suspending your disbelief enough for drawings or computer-driven graphics to feel things for them. And the first 30 minutes of Wally are just like a masterpiece of that. Um, I really love Up. <laughs> but Up has like a very like personal things like for me. I saw that was like one of my first dates with my husband. We saw Up and like oh. we both were like crying next to each other, not looking at each other because we didn't want the other person to see how badly we were crying. Um, I don't know. I that's really, a good date movie. It is a really good I, date movie. I went on a second date once to um, the Lego Batman movie. Oh my gosh, I still haven't seen it yet. It was pretty good. There was not a third date, though. No. Um, <laughs> was it because of the movie? I don't know. Oh no. Guys, let's air it right on here. Yeah. Well, it was, um, so it, it was right before my 21st birthday. Okay. He was, I believe he, he was 22. He, mm. he was over the drinking age I was under. Sure. And so I was like, yeah, this is kind of annoying because it's still like we can't just go to a bar and just get a drink or something. Right. So after that, I was like, yeah, we should. I'm turning 21 next month. Next month we should hang out. He's like, yeah, sure. And I texted him like, hey, like I'm, I have my horizontal yeah. license. Nothing. Radio silence. Just ghosted? Yeah. I'm so sorry. That sucks. Like, you know what? Like, it was probably the Batman movie and not you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was just like, I mean, that movie, that sucks, it just though, explained, yeah. it just, you explore how lonely Batman is. Because, oh, is that, is that what it's like about, like? Kind of. It's, it's, you just see, because in the Lego movie, the whole thing is just Batman is just this, just crazy, just, right. I'm awesome. Yeah, and then yeah. you just see, oh yeah, when he's just, when he's done being awesome, he's just, alone in his yeah. house. It's a good breakdown of the Batman mythos that none of the movies will ever do. <laughs> yes. Because Batman's sad. Like, I don't know. I look at Batman and I'm just like, man, what a sad, angry man. Like, he is. He's he, just sad. He's just like, my parents are dead, so <laughs> I'm going to beat up people forever. Have you seen Batman versus Superman? I oh. haven't. <sighs> is that, like, filled with issues? It is a bad movie, man. Like, Lord my God. Such a I saw it on an airplane too, so like my mind. You were stuck. <laughs> I was stuck, and I was like plane drunk, and my like standards are so much lower on a plane because I'm literally trapped. You know, like what mm-hmm. else am I going to do? And I had heard how bad this movie was, and I put it on, and I was still just sitting there like, why can't DC make a good movie? Wonder Woman was good. Wonder but, Woman. Oh yeah. my God, Wonder Woman was so good. Yeah, Wonder Woman, and she shows up in Batman vs Superman, and is honestly like the only interesting part of that movie. The rest of it is just like the most weird Zack Snyder garbage. Duh. Ah. Uh, I just saw, and like as much as like as some of the Marvel movies get repetitive and do like you know like ah oh, the the jokey non sincere thing, like they still know how to like make mm-hmm. a movie, and, and they're starting to get out of that funk. Because about I want to say like a couple years ago when 
the Iron Man sequels were in full swing. Mm-hmm. Like, they were very just much the same movie. Yeah. And I think once they start making the shows for Netflix mm-hmm. and they really realize, like, oh, they're still characters. And yeah. They've been I, kind of getting out of that. Yeah, and with what Marvel's done really well, and for a while they were straying away to that, but it's kind of just, like, letting, I, like, directors and talent kind of inform the universe versus being, like, it has to be, you know, X-Vision. Which is weird, considering that it's owned by Disney. You'd think that they'd be like, no, we must conform to this. But, like, letting Taika Waititi direct Thor Ragnarok was so cool. Have you seen What We Do in the Shadows? Um, no. Oh, shit. Stop everything right now. Go watch What We Do in okay, the Shadows. Okay, bye. <laughs> just stop it now. But it's, uh, What We Do in the Shadows is this New Zealand, like, vampire movie. And it's just, like, this, like, fun mockumentary following three vampires in New Zealand. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, and Taika Waititi uh, was the director and one of the stars. And he originally wrote the first draft in Moana, um, but then left the project. And then Disney gave him Thor Ragnarok to direct. Like, a comedy director. His really only experience in directing is in comedy. And, like, they were just like, do this with Thor. And it was delightful. Mm-hmm. But I heard that the whole um, Thor fighting Hulk, that was just like a huge reveal in the movie. Yeah, yeah, that happens. And that's like, um, I'm not, I'm just echoing. This sounds like such a, like, I'm just echoing what my husband said. Because my husband's a really huge Hulk fan. He's like, yeah, that's just like, it's a really big, famous Hulk storyline that they kind of just tacked on really quickly into the movie. And I'm like, Aww. yeah, yeah, I, I, I got that feeling. <laughs> like, they're just like, we need to put another Marvel character in here. Let's get the Hulk. Uh, yeah, because they were like, Robert Daddy Jr. needs a break. Yeah, exactly. Like, we're just spreading him out. He was annoying in Homecoming. I didn't see Homecoming. It's all right. Yeah, that's what the I thing is, The kid that plays Peter Parker in this one, his voice is just so whiny. Yeah. Because, like, the, I mean, I, Topher Grace is my Spider-Man. Or not Topher Grace. To, uh, um, Tobey Maguire? Tobey Maguire. I, was I thinking can of, see Topher Grace. Well, he was Spider- Venom in Spider-Man 3. Oh, that's right. Yes. So that, I guess yes. I've made that connection. But, like, Tobey Maguire, his, like, raspy voice... Made sense as yeah. Spider-Man, but <laughs> if you see Spider-Man: Homecoming, the movie, so much of it is just him, Peter Parker going whoa, <laughs> just like hey, stop! Like he I've can't, heard that. he can't do anything. Sure. And then Robert Downey Jr. just shows up. He's like, kid, you're acting reckless. You split apart a boat. That does happen. He a ferry gets chopped in half. What? It's insane. What? But yes. Okay. Um, oh, also my favorite uh, Pixar movie. Yeah. Ratatouille. I love Ratatouille so much. And I will, Disneyland Paris is obsessed with Ratatouille, which is... Oh, I can imagine. It, the Ratatouille ride there, they're bringing it to... Sorry. That's all good. <laughs> I banged the table. Uh, there's a Ratatouille ride at Disney World or Disneyland Paris. Ooh, what happens? It's really fun. Um, it, have you been on the X-Men ride at Universal Studios where it's kind of like you're in a thing and it's a mixture of movies projecting and then like the thing moving back and forth and then like huge weirdly scaled sets to make it feel like you're... Oh, is that kind of like the Harry Potter ride in uh, Universal? Best ride, but it's kind of like that, but like on a track and like not okay. like flipping you around like that. Uh, but the the Ratatouille ride is like you're riding a mouse and like everything is scaled to make it feel like you're like That's rat so size. It's so cute. Like a lot of Disneyland Paris is kind of like... But uh, that ride is really fun, and they're bringing it to Disney World. So oh, great! Yeah. I I my mom like said to me a year ago for your graduation, I think we're gonna go to Disney World. I'm like, really? Okay, do if you want to pay for it. Yeah, I mean, my thing. I I went to Disney World when right around the time Hunchback and Notre Dame came out, and there was actually you know, there was a show at Hollywood Studios. I remember seeing that and just being like, no, uh, <laughs> it follows me. Why? Um, but uh, I I didn't go. And as an adult until like maybe four years ago because my husband and I like traveling and we took turn picking vacations and it was his turn and he was like you want to go to Disney World? and I was like no like I mean okay fine we'll go and then I went and I was just like ah 
is it's a game changer as an adult. It really is super fun. If you don't, I look at people with kids, especially like babies and stuff that go there, and it just looks like the most stressful. Like, like uh, I don't know. I would, I would, I went the first time. I think I was three. Mm-hmm. I think if I went when I was five, that would have been perfect. Yeah, five is like the good age. It's like they're old enough one to remember to. Like, they know the gravitas of like, oh, I need to stay by mom and dad. Yeah, exactly, and then. Like, I went, like, I was, like, 9 or 10, and I was at that age where I was, like, I'm too cool for Disney, but I was, like, secretly loving it, mm-hmm. you know? But, like, uh, as an adult, it's so much fun. Although it's also just, like, especially Epcot, it's drunk adult daycare. Like, it's just nothing but drunk it's like, adults. I went when I was 18. Yeah. So I was I was so close, yeah. but <laughs> I was just like, fine, we'll have a sober meal at uh Japan. Yeah, it's it, it is really a game changer when you can go as an adult and not have to worry about like little kids or yeah. anything like Actually, that. Actually, also Epcot is my favorite ride. What's that? Test Track. Test Track is so much fun. It's, I love it. I think it's the perfect amount of um thrill for me cuz I'm I'm very much I'm terrified of roller coasters. Oh, yeah? Like I like I'll do the kind of virtual ones like the Harry Potter one, mm-hmm. but I, I couldn't do the Flight of the Hippogriff cuz that oh, just yeah. it looks a lot it's like I'll do the the Goofy's Flight School yeah, and sure. then Ep, uh, and then Test Track. Those are my kind of coasters where it's sure. just like it's got a little bit of thrill and chill in it, yeah. but I mean, like nothing's did, gonna happen. Did you do Mission Space? That's the um, one where you go to Mars. That one that one is like a. If you, I I love roller coasters and I don't get nauseous on them, but like the last time I rode it, like I was just like I might throw up on this. I ride. don't think I remember. Is that is that? It's like, right next to Test Track. And, like, it, they just redid it, but it used to be Gary Sinise narrated it. And, like, it was just, like, we're who's, sending you to who's Mars. Who's now? Uh, they, they just re- – I don't think she's a name or anything, but they replaced him with a woman. It's, like, the exact same script. They just updated the visuals a bit because they were looking, like, very, like, sure. 90s. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, like Tron. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, it's just, like, they put you in um, one of those um, centrifugal kind of spinner things that they use in NASA to stimulate oh. or simulate a zero-G kind of uh, – Environments, it just spins you around really fast. But oh, yeah. but like with the with the way it's made up, it doesn't feel like you're spinning. It feels like you're launching off, and it is like you're in this tiny, dark, enclosed space to make it feel like you're in like an, you know an actual like rocket, and it is great. But it, it is. I think I know which place you're talking. It's like it's got all the planets around it. I think I went on a a similar ride. It's like you get into just like a little pod, and mm-hmm. there's like a screen up front, uh-huh. and there's like I think like. Two like, like four seats in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's like buttons and stuff. Yeah. yeah okay. I went that. on. I went on the. I the chose, easy version. I chose the easy yeah. version because it was. My, all my friends were like, "Yeah, let's do full," and I'm like, "I'm. I have a sensitive stomach, so I went on the easy one. It was me and an Australian family. <laughs> and they were like, "We're on Mars," and yeah. I'm like, "Yeah, I don't know you." Uh, hi. <laughs> That's my my favorite thing is when you do like single rider because like none of my friends like test track, which I'm just like everyone I gone with, they're like, "Yeah, whatever, it's fine," and I'm like. What? So I think I it's dumb, like, the, the part of the beginning when you have to design your cards. Like, yeah. I, I don't need this. Yeah, and, like, they're doing, like, the fake testing at the beginning. You're like, I just want that 60-mile-per-hour <laughs> turn. But, like, I'll, I've ridden it almost every time single rider, so I'm always with, like, a family, like, in, like, because it seats six people, and it's always, like, me and then, like, a family, and then they get their photo, and there's just, like, some <laughs> rando <laughs> who's me that looks like me, just, yeah. like... I, I have, like, a photo somewhere because um, I was... I was I had bailed on so many rides during mm-hmm. this trip with my friends that I was like I'm okay I'm gonna go on test track mm-hmm. I watched I I like watched a little bit of the the video the, mm-hmm. on the Disney Parks website or whatever I'm ready and I was starting to get nervous and I was like guys wait so like what's what's gonna happen and they refused to tell me and I was like guys like just Aww. make me feel a little better tell Aww. me 
and they didn't. So um, the picture that they take right when you're about to go, yeah. you can just see me holding my friend's hand. Aww. And then it was nothing. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, okay, you made me feel like an ass. Did you like Soren? Like the one that's like... Oh, I loved Soren. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's... And you can smell the oranges. Exactly. They updated it. Now you go around the world. And they I just like they just opened a ride for Avatar, which it's a it's still mind boggling for me because that movie's such a nothing thing, but the ride is spectacular. It is like an intense Soren. You're like strapped on an individual thing, and you're made to feel like you're riding like the Banshee. Oh. I'm like, this is such a fun ride. I wish it was about a property I cared about. Wouldn't this be great if instead of riding a Banshee, you were on Quasimodo's back like Esmeralda and jumping up and down around Notre Dame? Where's that ride, Disney? Sorry, That'd be horrific. That would be really cool though. <laughs> it's a really cool ride, but. My Avatar. brother really likes Avatar. Um, I think, like we, I he was sick the other day, so I, I went to his house to kind of hang out, and it was on TBS, and he was like, "Don't change it." We're watching and Avatar. and like the graphics aren't even that good. No, it's just like it's basically Pocahontas. But here's the thing with Disney: so like they put all this money into this this whole area of Animal Kingdom that is supposed to look like Pandora, and it opened uh, earlier this year, and I went. I've been twice this year since it opened, and both times, the wait line for that ride is four hours. Wow. They do a beautiful job with it. Um, They make you care about it, even though I was like, I don't give a rat's ass about this movie. I don't give a shit. Like, the ride's amazing, and it looks beautiful. And then you go into the gift shop, and they're so good at merchandise. You're like, that's so cool. I want to spend $60 on a Biolumin. Wait, what the fuck? I don't give a fuck about this movie. Yeah, like, my, Disney's so good at it. When I, when I was in Disney, um, my friend, I found out, was one of those, like, pin people. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, he has all... Okay, you're the pins, too. <laughs> yeah. So he made us stop so many times to go to, like, one of the park workers oh. and be like, hey, can I look at your pins? And I was like... Is this real? Is this a thing? Oh, it's. I'm not like that hardcore. I do collect pins and I have like things that I look for, but like I don't make people go out of their way. Like, yeah. just so for me to like hunt and like bother people. Like, yes. I bought one. I bought the little one from Up, the grape soda. I have that one too. Because that one's cute. And I'm like, oh, that's like a fun little accessory if I want to be yeah. goofy. That one's not too like embarrassing. I just say this having mounted a bunch of the pins that I have on my office wall, right? <laughs> I mean, I bet they look great. It looks so cool. I'm totally like the coolest person in the world with my Disney things. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, I do love Ratatouille, though, I will say. I was in France when that movie came out, too. It was really funny. Like, You're just like, let's go on over. It's like, let's go see. Um, it feels like every time I've been, because I've been, been lucky enough to have gone to France like multiple times, and every time I go there, there's always something with Ratatouille going on. <laughs> it's like, aww. Wow. Did you just like remember? Do you remember? It was weird because like I remember the American promotional stuff having to tell you how to pronounce ratatouille on the bottom. Oh, that was funny. <laughs> yeah. Like, ah, oh, yeah, ratatouille, the pun. And it's also still funny to say rat patootie. Rat patootie, yeah. Is that, wait, is that like, the, is that the only real time that like a Disney, they've uh, there's been a Disney movie where like a character is like real fucking drunk? Because I can't, I can't. There's, th- there's a lot of drunkenness in, in a lot of earlier Disney cartoons, like. But, like, as a specific plot point. Because, there, yeah, there are, like, people that are just like, mm. ah, like, let's drink. Mm. Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, but you mean, like, a character who is, like, a, a drunk? Mm-hmm. Like, because, like, there's a lot of, like, background characters that are, like, big But, like, drinkers. Linguini front and center yeah. saying rat patootie. Yeah. I'm try- now I'm thinking, like, in my head, like, the one that is explicitly a drunk, that is a main character. Yeah. I, I know there's, like, an obvious example, and I'm just, like... Why can't I think of this? Because there's like like one. right when we stop recording, you're gonna be like, oh, it's like God, it's uh, fucking <laughs> Joanna the iguana from <laughs> Rescuers Down Under. <laughs> uh, there, yeah, I know it's at the 
top of my head. But there's a lot of drinking in Disney movies. There's like I remember if you've seen The Great Mouse Detective, the whole Radigan song. I think I've seen it once. Oh god, it's a, such a good movie. It's like it's a like a very low stakes movie, but like it's a fun movie. It, it could only get made because Disney wasn't making money, and they're like, I don't give a fuck, do whatever you want. It's Vincent Price's last role that he ever did. Oh. And it's just a she. It's just I'm not Shakespeare. It's just a um, Sherlock Holmes, but with mice. Speaking of which, I, I was I was thinking about it this morning, and I'm always so fascinated by the last roles of uh, actors mm-hmm. after they die. Mm-hmm. Like, Philip Seymour Hoffman's was uh, Alice in Wonderland 2. Yeah. And uh, Marlon Brando's last role was um, in a movie that was never released because I think they realized it was shitty. Which one? It's called Big Bug Man. Yeah. You know about Big I've Bug Man? Big Bug Man. I've never seen it, though. I don't think it's anywhere. Yeah. Like, Well, it's like one of Orson Welles. It was either his last one or the one... The second to last one, his penultimate, was for the animated Transformers movie. He plays like the villain that looks like a giant gaping butthole, and it's just like, ah, uh, Orson Welles. Like I only know about Big Bug Man because I found like this weird news report. I think it's from like CNN's early days, where they're like, Marlon Brando will be remembered as a woman because he played a the, the character he plays in Big Bug Man is like this old lady. And according to the directors that they interview in the news piece, he showed up to the animation uh, to record his voiceover. Like, he dressed in drag. Whoa. Whoa. At least he's going method for it. Whoa. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's more, that's Brando. Brando. <laughs> and also, yeah. uh, I was uh, Charlie Rocket, that SNL cast member from the, the worst season ever. Oh, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. His last role was uh, in that animated movie, Fly Me to the Moon. Yeah, okay, yeah. I never saw that. But no, I, oh, no one did. Yeah. Because everybody was like, why? What? what is this about <laughs> flies that go to the moon? This, uh, did you, I, I love, like, did you ever see, um, it's it's made by, like, it's not like a 20th Century Fox Dawn Blue thing, like Anastasia. It's Swan, Swan Princess. Yes. Yeah. That's actually my one of my brother's favorite movies. Oh, my God, really? We watched it a lot. Oh, my God. <laughs> I used to, like, um... I, my best friend, that was, like, her best favorite movie, and I'd seen it so many times. But there's, like, so many of those, like, little, like, wanting to get in on the Disney Renaissance pie. Like Thumbelina. Like Thumbelina, which is Don Bluth. So Don Bluth worked for Disney in the 70s and 80s and uh, then left to go to, um, oh, fuck, what's it called? Uh, Steven Spielberg's production company, which then oh, became DreamWorks. Um, um, Amblin? Amblin Entertainment? Yes. Yeah, to go and make movies... Or I think Fox actually owned it, but Steven Spielberg der- produced. I'm a less of a Don Bluth historian in the general sense, but like to produce <laughs> an American Tale. <laughs> yeah. Oh, American um, Tale. Which which uh, is, is 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 a very good movie. Um, the Secrets of Nim is a great movie. Like Don Bluth, Don Bluth movies in the early like late '80s, early '90s are pretty good. And then you can see that need to, you know, he had a very different artistic vision than the Walt Disney Animation Studio, and like. People run with it, but as the Disney Renaissance is happening, they're like, "You gotta make Disney movies." And Thumbelina is like literally him, like throwing in the towel. Uh, the woman who plays Thumbelina is Jodie Benson, who does the voice of Ariel in The Little Mermaid. Like that's how, yeah. like, like there's that song between her and the prince that is basically a whole new world, and it is just like that. And then Anastasia happened, and Anastasia was literally Don Bluth being like, "I don't fuck care anymore." Anas- make that Anastasia movie. was fine. Oh, I have a deep. Hatred for I think Journey to the Past is a good song. There, mm-hmm. 
Um, the song, the dumb, the dumbest song is the one where if she can learn to do it, you, you can, can learn, learn to, to do it. Yeah, it's uh, that's Aaron's and Flaherty, I believe. They wrote Ragtime, which is one of my favorite musicals. They wrote Susical too, but oh. um, uh, I love Journey of the Past is a good song, and Once Upon December is a great song too. But uh, but everything else, everything is... else about it just pisses me off on such a deep level, and it's. It's a disappointing Don Bluth movie because he he is a very talented man and it just it's, it's just sad to see somebody throw in the towel so hard. I also just hate how it romanticizes the Romanovs who were awful. But uh, it's like, <laughs> like oh, they had struggles too. Yeah. Oh, they, oh. They, they like like they're just like isn't Tsar Nicholas great? And you're like oh god, don't read history about Tsar Nicholas II. <laughs> don't just don't, or do be informed <laughs> but also like you watch Anastasia and you're like, I mean that's just like I guess that's like another just Disney renaissance trying to copy things just like they're yeah. doing historical stuff they're doing yeah. um, the Huns they're doing Pocahontas let's do I'm sure Romanovs I'm sure like Fox Animation knew that when Pocahontas because most animation movies are in long production cycles like it takes usually three to four years to make an animated movie from beginning to end uh, yeah. like, a di- like a Disney quality movie Beauty and the Beast is a rare one where they made it in two and a half months because like or two and a half years, sorry. Like, like, hold on, half, hold on. Two and a half years, sorry. Uh, but that was before like the Renaissance had hit its full peak yet, and they were willing to give them that kind of time. They're like, you can make this in two and a half years on a low budget. But um, uh, I'm sure they knew Pocahontas was in production just because everyone knows when these things happen, and they were like, Disney's doing Pocahontas. Well, that was like that was like the early days of DreamWorks, where it was like bugs a bug's life and ants or yeah. the why well the weird reverse one where they uh dreamworks did madagascar and then disney did the wild oh uh, i never i never saw the wild i didn't see the wild either i remember the ads and i was like this is just madagascar I, I don't even remember i don't even remember that movie at all and it was just like 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 a meet the robinsons kind of era sort of yes thing. gotcha meet the robinsons not bad i've never seen it i, I, I know the, like the I dinosaur it, i have tiny yeah. arms yeah i saw it in theaters and it was the first movie that i'd seen when they switched from red and cyan to 3d to real d mm-hmm. and i remember i was blown away and i was like why are we not talking about this mm-hmm. and then the movie ended and i was like yeah it was fine, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> i just anyway, remember the dinosaur arms thing. yeah well that was the i mean that was the poll quote from the trailer yeah, yeah. And everybody loved it but um do you have any final thoughts on hunchback before we go and rate it um, um, I, I mean, I know you do. Yeah, I. We honestly like I. Oh my gosh, the tangents we avoided today. Um, I think Hunchback is worth revisiting, especially now in this time. I don't think it got enough love or the right marketing that it needed in 1996. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's definitely worth watching. I think it's one of the best scores written for a Disney movie. Um, one of the best movie scores in general. Not even talking the songs, just the orchestral music is incredible. Art direction's beautiful. Really good stuff. There's just a lot of. If you hate Disney cliche corny shit, there's a lot of that to get through. But I, I, I think it's worth watching and worth reconsidering. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. One random thing that I forgot to bring up before is um, Trollo has Tro- one of the... <laughs> what are the I love shit. Trollo. Okay, Frollo. Okay. I'm sorry, I just figured that out. But I love Trollo so much. <laughs> Trollo is the best. Didn't he die, the Trollo guy? Frollo? The guy who played his voice? No, 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 no. Like the actual Trollolo guy. Oh, he did die. I think yeah. He, did, yeah. he died a couple years ago. Oh, but but back to man. our Frollo. Yeah. Our Trollo. Um, Frollo has one of the best Disney villain voices. Oh, far and away. Like, I mean, all of them kind of meld together at some point, but he's like, oh, Quasimoto. Tony J. He got that job because he's a he plays a very big part in Beauty and the Beast, and they liked his voice so much. Uh, he was also the voice of Dr. Lipschitz from the Rugrats. Oh. Yeah, which is like my favorite thing to wow. think of when I watch that movie. But uh, yeah, Tony J, great. And he passed away, I think, about six or seven years ago. But man, what a voice. Oh, I, would, I, would, a, I would have hoped that he would have listened to this podcast. I know. <laughs> I just want to do right by you, Tony J. Uh, so anyway, uh, so let's rate this. So we rate uh, every movie here on four criteria. Uh, audience respect, 
plot, acting, and humor. We rate everything uh, zero to five. You can use any specific decimals. You okay. can get as minute as you like. So starting off with you, uh, Angelina, what did you think of audience respect? Like so how to zero to four. Zero to five. Zero to five. And, w- like, audience respect? Like, what, what do you... So, yeah, so... Um, no, no, no problem. When I wrote this months ago, I was like, this is probably going to be confusing. But, um, so audience respect is in kind of how um, the movie treats its audience. Does it treat it oh. like it's a kid's movie and pandering, well, or does it kind of treat it like an audience is an audience? straight two and a half movie, because half of this movie is great, half of it is very challenging for a Disney movie, and then the other half is like, here you go, you dummy, here's some Jason Alexander. So this gets a strict two and a half. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm getting a little nicer. I'm giving it a four, just because that the exact i'm i'm like bringing everything down a little bit just because of the gargoyles like i think as a whole the the the, it it was relatively challenging like i didn't feel i mean and you obviously know a lot more about the 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 origin of it and kind of the the uh you know (laughs) stuff about this than i do um but i mean i felt that this was very kind of like challenging and kind of this is your this a movie for you watch it we're not going to make like little references for parents and then like really make it talk down for kids yeah um what about what did you think of the plot i think i think it's a beautiful story so i gotta give it a five i think everything that it's it's saying is so important uh i think the character arc that quasimodo has is a really important one to have um and yeah, I, I, I really love it. I think it's a really good gripping mm-hmm. story. And a lot of that goes to Victor Hugo and a lot of it goes to cultural osmosis, changing it and finding what's important and relevant now. Yeah, I'm I, I'm going to be a little bit more critical this time. And I'm going to give it, oh, I thought I was about to burp, but then I did. Oh, God. <laughs> Keep thinking it's about to come. But we'll, we'll fight when it gets there. I'm, I'm giving it like a 3.8. Because okay. I think, um, I mean, again, Gargoyles brings it down. But yeah. Um, I, I, that was on the on the, the gargoyles don't really do anything with the story anyway, so I'm just not going to include them. That's here. fair. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think there there are parts of this movie that are that are very like well thought out. Like this movie, a lot of times I wrote it in my notes, it feels a lot like a bottle episode because it's all sure. it all takes place in the shadow and within the Notre Dame, and it's it's really great in that mm-hmm. regard. But then I don't know. Then it's just Phoebus just kind of is there for a little while. Yeah, Esmeralda. I, I loved her, but I still thought there were points where it's just like, you, you're kind of blanding right now. She is like, you know, and I, the five is a, like a very emotional response. But yeah, there are, there are definite, she's very much like the action girl, which we take for granted now because so much of that is like, yeah, you have your action girl. But in, in 1996, she's like, wow, she like does stuff and is proactive mm-hmm. and like fights and stuff. But now like in hindsight, you're like, oh, they're just like shoehorning in like this, like she's, she's a tough girl. She's not like other girls. Yeah. yeah, and also kind of what we were talking about before, just kind of the weird way they kind of played with gypsy culture sometimes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so yeah, uh, what did you think of the the voice acting? I I'm trying not to go on a tangent again. Sure. Um, I think the I'd give the voice acting a four. Like uh, they originally wanted Mandy Patinkin to play Quasimodo, which. Uh, if you think about that now, it's very weird. But he left because they went in the most Mandy Patinkin fashion ever. Have, um, he was just like, well, they're not letting it, me play it my way, so I don't want to be involved. But like, Oh, yeah, uh, Mandy Patinkin. Oh, Mandy Patinkin. Uh, he, he was in an NBC TV version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame next year that came out like 1997. That is garbage. It is so bad. It is a bad movie. Bad NBC. Well, that's a shame. But um, I, I love that Tom Hulse plays Quasimodo. Um, it's a really interesting... I love Amadeus. It's one of my favorite movies. And him as Mozart is like one 
one of my favorite things in the world. And he, has, he hasn't really done much. He went to like television directing after Hunchback. Mm-hmm. But um, Quasimodo's like a, he's deaf in the books and he's like very gruff and rocky voiced. And but he's still like a, a young guy, which a lot of versions miss. And I feel like they got that vulnerability with that. And then Tony Jay's Frollo is. Yeah, I mean, Frollo and Quasi made, like, I'm giving it a 4.5 because those two were fantastic. I I was surprised at what Quasimodo sounded like. I I was expecting him to sound more like LeFou. Yeah. And I was happy about that. I was like, good, I don't have to listen to an hour and a half of LeFou. That's the sweet, dulcet tones of human flower crown Tom Hulse. (laughs) He's so soft and gentle, and you're like, duh, he's so, nah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like, Demi Moore, they got Demi Moore, because it's like, yeah, Demi Moore is like the hot thing to have in 1996. And I love Kevin Kline, but this is, like, Phoebus is just kind of like a, you know. Yeah, he was was just kind of there. He's fine. One of something crazy I found out when I was doing a little research for this, Jason Alexander's real name is J. Scott Greenspan. Wow. J. Scott Greenspan. Is J- Where did the Alex... Like, wait. Wow. Unless I read something weird online somehow, that that's his real name. What's, what's interesting to me, and I, I, I knocked Jason Alexander, but I mean, I loved him on Seinfeld, but him and Charles Kimbra, who's the voice of like the other male gargoyle, got their start both in musical theater, like... Yeah. Uh, they're both known for Sondheim, and I'm a huge Sondheim fan, and Jason Alexander was in the original cast of Merrily We Roll Along, and every time I knock, I've been knocking really hard professionally on Jason Alexander with this Hunchback video, but I'm like, you know what, no. He's just hustling like everyone else. If, so, yeah. if Disney offered you... He's a great you, guy. He's a great... I'm sure... Oh, he's... Oh, well, I actually read a really... Uh, I don't know if this is a tangent worth going into right now, but about oh. Pocahontas and how one of the big complaints, uh, I think, with this movie that is worth examining on top of how it talks about Romani is that Esmeralda was super sexualized and Disney has this history of when it portrays women of color they are more sexualized than like anything else and so Esmeralda got a lot of that and it's kind of inherent in her character because she is a sex symbol to like all of these men in this in the, in this property right. but um, there was this really gross comment that I read in an interview with Entertainment Weekly in 1996 where Jason Alexander they were talking about Esmeralda being sexy and Jason Alexander's like yeah She's definitely as hot as Pokey, with Pokey being Pocahontas <laughs> at the time. And I was just like, oh. Pokey. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. So I, I, Jason. I just, Jason, what were you doing? Like, oh, my uh, goodness. But, uh, uh, I mean, like, if, if Disney came up to you and was like, hey, we're going to give you buckets of money to just make some, like, bird jokes. Totally. You know what? I can't say I wouldn't do it either, so I can't, I can't be too mad. Jason Alexander didn't create the role. But, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then finally, what did you think of humor? Because, I mean, there's not a whole lot in this movie, but just from no. from the, I guess, uh, I guess it's mainly gargoyles, but. I feel like, like, when it's not pertaining to the gargoyles, which for the most part is, like, painfully unfunny to me, <laughs> like, there's this dramatic tension, and then all of a sudden one of them's making a Wizard of Oz reference, and you're just like, I hated that. that's so bad, why are you doing this? Uh, but there's, like, they do find some really natural, funny body humor. Like, Quasimodo is very strong. There's, like, that great moment where he's, like, hoisting Phoebus unknowingly, and it's, like, a fun cut back to that. Or, like, um, even just, like, when he slaps him really hard on the back, and it's just like, oh, like, there's fun body humor found in that. And I think the writers and animators in particular, like, found some really fun physical stuff. That's not, like, it's not, like, you know, making a Wizard of Oz reference right in the middle, but just sure. like small things that are really funny. Um, but even still, I think the humor in this is, is a pretty low number. <laughs> like, Cute little jokes like that can't make humor alone. Mm-hmm. And when you have literally Jason Alexander holding up a croissant to your character with 
you know. And draws a, a, a picture a, of a goat he what wants the to fuck. What am I looking at? God. I just, what was the joke writing session? Like, you can see them wanting to make the genie again with Jason Alexander, where it's like this anachronistic, wisecracking thing, but... It didn't work. No. Nobody, nobody else was Robin Williams, and Robin Williams improvised like half of that movie anyway, so... You can't recapture lightning in a bottle. So, yeah, I'm going to give that a very low, like, one and a half. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna go right with you. Yeah. I originally was, like, giving, like, a neutral two and a half, but no. It's going to go. <laughs> but uh, crunching the numbers, um, Hunchback of Notre Dame, no, crap, Notre Dame. Dame, yes. Yeah, I got it this time. Mm-hmm. Um, comes to uh, 3.35 out of 5, which is... It's good. Um, I'm trying to look at the movies that we've done previously to try to give it a little bit of, co- of a comparison. So <laughs> it's a weird comparison, but Hunchback of Notre Dame, Notre Dame, <laughs> according to our system, is uh, a little bit better than Captain Underpants, the first epic <laughs> movie. But it's a little bit worse than uh, Mary Poppins. I'll, I'd, I'd agree with that. I, I just had to watch Mary Poppins for work. It's... Uh, Mary Poppins is fine. I, I, I it's a lot longer than I remember it's a, it being. Yeah, it is a very like a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not divergent, uh, meandering kind of film. But uh, I, I do like it a lot, just from a technical perspective and history on it. But I, I think that sounds fair. Like I love Hunchback, but I it's a very flawed love. Yes. Yeah. So, um, Angelina, thank you so much for yeah. coming. Thank I, you for having me. It was me. a delight to have you. We. We should hang out more so we can gab more about just Disney because yeah. I didn't realize how much we had to talk about it. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Like, this was mostly just held up. No, about no need to apologize. It was a lot of fun. Um, is there anything that you would like uh, to plug or anything yeah. that you would like to show on social media or um, anything? So uh, right now, if you actually want to hear more about Hunchback of Notre Dame, I, I again, work for um, Lindsay Ellis, who's a YouTuber. I'm a co-writer and co-editor there. Uh, we talk about film history. A lot of it's Disney right now, too. So uh, you can find that um, at youtube.com slash user slash Shay, C-H-E-Z, Apocalypse. <laughs> There's some tapping next door. So Shay Apocalypse. Um, it also, if you just Google Lindsay Ellis, it's the first result. Um, so you can see my work there. And then if you're in Philadelphia, I am in Thank You Places, an improvised musical every yeah. first and third Friday of the month at Philly Improv Theater um, at 7 o'clock. And I highly recommend it. Oh, we didn't we yeah. didn't talk about it all, but it's just like I, musical improv is my favorite thing. It's like a weird third eye that I just get mm-hmm. at some point, And I can't recommend the show enough. It's incredible it's fun being in it and i i i really i i love seeing people come to it it's just it, it is a really enjoyable vulnerable place to be because you're singing and improvising at the same time but, yeah uh, but because like it's such a vigorous process to like get a be a part of musical improv like every show is just like it just works because yeah. it's like we all know what needs to happen yeah yeah everyone knows the tropes really well and like it, you can like kind of lean in really hard to some really fun stuff and so mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways it's a little bit easier but in other ways it's a lot I don't. It's just, that's why it's fun. Like there's just like these different balances. But uh, there's that, and then uh, Metropolis will be having uh, a short run of shows with uh, House Team Hoffman. There, two house teams at Philly mm. Improv Theater uh, this November. I don't remember the times. Yeah. Anyway, and I'll just hop off that and plug that if you're in the yeah. Philadelphia area, the Black Friday Comedy Marathon is at the Philly Improv Theater. Uh, Angelina and I will both be performing at different points. I'll be there mainly in the middle of the night, so that'll be fun. Yeah. So if you're there at 3 a.m., see me uh, do Jurassic Park. Uh, oh. At one point, also we're trying to do improvised um, memento. Oh my! Gosh. So 
we'll, we have not practiced whatsoever. Yeah. We'll see if that yeah. comes together. But uh, thank you all for listening. We'll hear you next week. And uh, go, go, Gadget, end show.